Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. Hello and welcome back. It is episode 11. We are almost to 12, which is a full year, even though it's taken us a little bit longer to get there. <laughs> yeah. How, no, how, how, welcome everyone. Happy, uh, I know everyone out there is probably starting their fall semesters. Yeah. So we want to wish everyone a good start to their school year. It's weird. Now you're not in the school schedule anymore. How not what's anymore. What's the transition like there? It's been an interesting one. I am. Uh, I do miss the flexibility that came with, um, you know, being in a more research-intensive environment, academic environment. But, you know, I'm enjoying it, and I'm having a good time. The hardest reality of adulting is no spring break unless you plan it yourself, which is just <laughs> yes. so unfortunate, but it is. welcome it, to the world. I know. And it makes you, I think, appreciate the weekends much more. For sure. For so. sure. Well, we are excited today because we've got a topic that actually I feel like people have been requesting for a while. Uh, it's V-Hit. So we've got a lot of things we've looked at in regards to this topic. Yeah, we have uh, several different uh, resources that we use for this month. Um, one, I think we've, you know, we've all used at some point the Balance Function Assessment and um, Management Textbook by Jake Jacobson and Shepard. I think they're on now the third edition, but that's kind of the the cat's book for vestibular science um, these days, and. You know, that's um, a resource that many of us go to. But we've also looked at a, a couple different uh, review papers for VHIT. Um, the first one is a, 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 clin a video head impulse test, a review of the literature by Al Habib and uh, Saliba in 2016. Um, second paper that we looked at was clinical value of the video head impulse test in patients with vestibular neuritis. Um, a systematic review by um, Leonardo Manzari et al. in 2021. That group has done quite a bit of uh, work on VHIT. Um, and then third is uh, video head impulse testing in the pediatric population. So we're going to touch on some of that a little bit uh, by Hamilton um, and colleagues in 2015. So before we talk in detail about what VHIT is and how we evaluate a normal response, it's important to know, first of all, what it stands for. That's critical. We have a lot of acronyms in this field, so I feel like we've, we got to keep them all straight. VHIT stands for Video Head Impulse Test, and this is a very interesting test. The whole basis behind it was uh, we were looking, first of all, for a test that looked at a high frequency evaluation of the VOR. So in vestibular testing, we have a couple different uh, evaluations of the VOR at low frequencies, but that tends to not be everyday head movement speed. So um, the whole idea behind VHIT was looking for a way to evaluate high frequency VOR movement. Um, and the VOR, as we know, drives corrective eye movements when the head is in motion. And we have known that the eyes always move in the equal and opposite direction of the head. So this is another way to evaluate how much the eyes are moving. What's interesting in, about our previous tests, like rotary chair calorics, those uh, predominantly look at that horizontal plane of stimulation. So they are not evaluating the vertical, vertical canals. So VHIT was a way to look at the other planes of stimulation to determine what the function of the vestibular system was. Um, VHIT's pretty new. It was first mentioned in the literature in 2005 by Ulmer and Chase. 
and the actual technology for video goggles to lock onto the pupils uh, during testing was created by Hamish McDougall. Um, I hopefully I said that yeah, right. No, that's right. Yep. <laughs> but um, the whole idea behind head movement and measurement of this high frequency VOR is not new to vestibular. Um, actually, before V hit, there was something or there is still something called the head impulse test that a lot of clinicians use. Right. And so V hit really has its roots in this bedside head impulse test. And it's a very simple test that takes advantage of the lateral VOR. And it basically, the clinician just places their hands on either side of the head, it has the patient stare at a target right in front of them, usually the clinician's nose, and moves their head in short, quick movements, similarly to how VIA hit is performed, and we'll get into that. Um, but basically, in a healthy VOR, the eyes are going to be able to remain fixed on um, the clinician's nose even during these head movements and there will be a, an absence of um, any corrective saccades which we will later um, know that these are actually overt saccades and so um, in a healthy VOR the eyes will be able to remain fixed even during these head movements um, there was an attempt before this video um, technology um, that allowed the camera to pick up these very very high um, speed movements of the eye. Um, there was an, a technique um, in the research world known as the scleral search coil. And this was a very invasive technique of recording <laughs> eye movements. It's often referred to as the gold standard uh, because it consists of placing this sort of circular coil, uh, very thin, almost like a contact, um, placing it on the pupil in and of itself. And basically it's connected to this electrical wire that any time that the eye moves, it sends its um, magnetic field through this very thin wire attached to the circular disc. And so um, this was a very invasive, um, probably uncomfortable. So as you can imagine, this technique is not very um, real world friendly or patient friendly, uh, but it is, it was sort of the stepping stone that allowed us to um, move forward with uh, this video technology. That's really so, interesting. A little background there. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know any of that. That's super interesting. Um, but yes, along came VHIT, which has proven to be a very accurate way to evaluate that high frequency VOR movement. And ultimately, um, as Danny, you've mentioned, it's using goggles um, to track the pupils. And more importantly, the goggles have such a great technology that they can track very high speeds and great resolution. Um, VHIT overall provides objective measures of both the head velocity stimulus, because that's important to know, um, and also that compensatory eye velocity response. And the way that we record this is through small, abrupt, and unpredictable head rotations. Yes. Um, so what is this actually looking at? Well, it's still taking advantage of the lateral VOR. Um, but in addition, what VHIT is also looking at and what really VHIT is the only way that kind of currently allows us to look at and evaluate the vertical canals. Um, before VHIT, there was absolutely no way to evaluate pretty much the vertical canals unless you were maybe doing a, a Dix Hall Pike looking for BPPV or something like right. that, but nothing really looking at VOR function. Um, and VHIT allows us to look at the vertical, vertical canals too. But um, so basically, um, 
I like to think of vestibular evaluation or vestibular function testing in sort of we know when we're doing let's say we're if we're testing the the hearing system or the auditory system we're testing across these range of frequencies um, similarly with with the vestibular system it it functions on a range of frequencies except not right. frequencies of sound it's these frequencies of motion and so we're we're testing these low mid and high frequencies of motion and vhit allows us to to evaluate VOR function at high frequencies of motion, motion that uh, more or less um, aligns with everyday head movements, which typically is going to fall somewhere in between one to six hertz. Um, compared to sound, it may that sounds ultra low, but as mm -hmm. far as the VOR and the and the vestibular system, that's um, a pretty high natural everyday head movement, and so. What VOR is looking at is VOR gain. Liz had mentioned that the video cameras are picking up both the head velocity and the compensatory eye velocity. And if we know anything about, um, you know, the vestibular system with regard, maybe even Ewald's first law out there, we're looking yeah. at, uh, we know that um, the eyes are going to move in equal and opposite direction of the, of the head. And so this is, VOR gain is going to be our primary measurement parameter that we're going to evaluate here, in addition to some more gross uh, parameters uh, or more, more gross uh, metrics such as uh, corrective saccades. So VHIT is a test that is very technically complicated. Um, that's, I feel like, something that I hear quite a bit. And maybe it's just because you know, not every clinic or university may even have VHIT. Um, it is a newer technology. So just a little basis for how to set somebody up if you've never done VHIT before. Um, the patient sits in a chair, should be a non-moving chair. It should be a stable chair that won't move. Um, and they have a target that sits about one meter away. Um, usually people will set up a patient in a chair like one meter from the wall and put some sort of like dot or you know, target on the wall. It needs to be in a well-lit room. So if you had just finished rotary chair and you were in the dark, this would be a test that you'd want to perform where there's light so that the patient can well uh, fixate on that target. Typically, they recommend a one-inch target. Um, one thing to know is that visual acuity does not matter. So obviously, VHIT involves the patient wearing a pair of video goggles. The patient, if they wear glasses, can take their glasses off. That is not necessary um, and actually, I remember when I was at Boys Town doing some research there, they did a study on whether visual acuity did play a oh, role in that. Yeah. And because um, I have contacts, so I did it like with and without my contacts. And as long as the patient can see the target, which most of the time, you know, when you think about rotary chair and VNG systems, we don't have them wear their glasses. So it, it doesn't really matter whether they're wearing their glasses or not. And turns out they can't because we got to give out, give them another pair of video goggles. But um the goggles sit pretty snug on the face, so that's one thing to be aware of. And because we're moving the head so quickly, they do need to be pretty tight and snug, but still tolerable. The, the main reason for this is to prevent goggle slippage while the head is in motion. Um, so it's nice and snug. And then once you're actually doing and performing the test, you do 10 to 20 degree head movements, usually above 150 degrees per second. So it's a very, very quick head movement um, and ultimately you do this tiny little head movement tiny but quick 
and you also have a fast stop because you don't want the head to rebound uh, with your hands or wrists. And of course, there's three different planes of stimulation in which you can test the patient in. So make sure that you're performing whatever ideal plane you want to. Most people will start out with a horizontal head movement. Um, and we'll have to post some pictures about what a vertical head movement looks like because it is a little bit odd and it's not necessarily a normal head movement. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was a um, great uh, explanation of the setup. It's, it's really simple um, with regard to setting up the patient. I think I think the biggest thing it just in the interpretation comes down to did did you as the clinician um, you know account for some of these things rebound goggle slippage and that right. really if if you're sort of it's almost like um, controlling for the noise before yep. performing like an ABR or something you always you always want to make sure you you take the necessary precautions on the front end. Um, that way you can make the, you know, the most inter uh, appropriate, you know, interpretation of your results. And so as long as some of these things are taken into consideration, you can feel, feel fairly confident that your um, results are um, reliable. Yeah. Um, so next we'll, we're going to get sort of dive into the different measurement parameters. The most important being VOR gain. Um, basically, you know, there's a couple of different companies, um, that calculate VOR gain, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be, what is the eye velocity relative to the head velocity? Um, a couple of different, you know, techniques to do this. Um, I'm, I can go, I'm going to go through a couple, a few of them. So one is instantaneous gain. Okay. So. Um, there's a technique to calculate what the uh, eye velocity is at X time, okay, so during the head movement. is So you can take the eye velocity at, let's just say, 40 milliseconds or 60 milliseconds or 80 milliseconds. That's typically the range that most um, companies will use for instantaneous gain. Um, they won't really go any higher than that because of they don't want their software accidentally calculating corrective saccades as instantaneous gain. Um, so they'll usually stay below um, 80 milliseconds and above about 40. And so what is that eye velocity at those specific time points? So that's instantaneous gain. Um, regression um, gain is going to be basically taking you know, gain at 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80, and then fitting it to linear regression. Um, and basically seeing what overall that, that gain is going to average out to. Um, there's also a couple of less common techniques, such as area under the curve, which is going to be taking basically this average below the entire range that the I velocity is above zero. And so, that is going to be area under the curve. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to calculate or quantify uh, VOR gain, but just know at the end of the day, they're all trying to measure the same thing. They're all trying to measure or quantify this eye velocity relative to head, relative to head velocity. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And really, you know, the, the second main thing uh, that I want you to run us through, because I, I always tell Daniel he's smarter than me and he's better at explaining this, but um, the other thing that's evaluated in VHIT testing is whether there are corrective saccades. So what is a corrective saccade, first off? Sure, sure. So um, basically a corrective saccade, so if we go back to what the function or the purpose of the VOR is, um, that, that sort of will sort of lay the foundation for what a corrective saccade or what, how that comes into play or help it put, into, it put it into context. For the VOR, its job is to maintain a visual image on the fovea or the foveola of the retina. And so um, during, particularly during, um, during head movement. And so in a normal healthy VOR, it's going to send information of what your head is doing to the ocular motor system to a couple of different nerves um, that control eye muscles and move the eyes in, a, in an appropriate and equal and opposite direction. We know that. Well, when there is a vestibular impairment or vestibular dysfunction, um, the VOR is not sending that information appropriately or as accurately. And so what ends up happening is the VOR ends up slipping, retinal slip. You have this retinal slip of the image that you're trying to track. Um, the eyes cannot actually stay on it. And so what happens is you have this slip or this ocular drift that occurs uh, because the the view or the eye muscles are not um, receiving it, the accurate information. And so what the ocular motor system has to do is initiate a very fast saccade to bring the eyes back to the target. And so it really serves a purpose of trying to maintain this. Um, unfortunately, it it takes you know some time and so um these these don't happen instantaneously um you know you sort of have this drift and then there's this um corrective saccade to bring this image back into focus yeah and there's really you know those two main type of corrective saccades that that individuals discuss right. um how would you distinguish those so okay so here we go. We're getting into a V hit. Um, so during head impulse testing, they, with the natural eye, they were able to see these corrective saccades. Um, basically, you would turn the patient's head. After the patient's head would stop, you would see this very quick corrective saccade. It wasn't until V hit, or maybe potentially even the scleral search coil, that they were able to see this other type of saccade. And so I'm gonna, there's actually two types of corrective saccades that we're going to talk about. First is going to be the overt saccades. These are corrective saccades that happen after the head movement. And these were the ones that have always been observed even with bedside head impulse testing. Um, typically this is greater than 200 milliseconds because that's typically when the head stops after um, the head initiates. Um, but we also need to consider these covert saccades. These saccades happen during the head movement. Um, and so we can talk about 
there's we can talk about the importance of these two types of saccades because um, the literature has shown that depending on how these saccades are organized or what types of saccades are present, um, these can tip you off into the compensation status of your patient. Um, so for example, um, if somebody has just had an acute vestibular impairment, um, they're typically going to have very disorganized overt saccades. Um, they're not going, they're going to be sort of all over the place happening after the head movement. And as someone starts to compensate or go through vestibular compensation, these overt saccades may be then become more covert like um, happening during the head movement. And they also may become more organized. And really, it has to do with just the stages of compensation. And it has to do with this recalibration um, that the brain is trying to perform um, as a result of the vestibular impairment. Yeah, so it might be important to just quickly go over what normal looks like, which I know we've already indicated this, but a normal response in VHIT testing, uh, the gain should be pretty, like, ideally, very close to 1.0 is how they evaluate that because, again, eye movement should be equal and opposite to head movement. Uh, what's been established in the literature for normal populations is that the gain of the eye movement should be at least 0.8 of the head movement, so essentially 80% of that maximum amount of movement um, for horizontal canals and 0.7 for the vertical canals. So that's pretty typical uh, normative data. Now that we've touched on sort of the, as Liz likes to say, the meat and potatoes of, of what VHIT is, um, we're going to sort of now bring it back and sort of put this in, into context of just of vestibular function testing. And so what are the benefits of VHIT? Um, well, there are many. There's one, it's a very quick test. Um, you know, setting up the patient is very minimal. Um, performing the test is very minimal. I mean, you, you're, you're probably done within five to 10 minutes. Um, it's a very quick test. Um, it, it, for the most part, it is tolerable by, by most, um, ages. Um, um, the only, you know, things that you may just have to consider is, um, and I will, what Liz will talk about is just neck mobility. Uh, but most of the time it is, it is tolerable. Um, it has the huge advantage of evaluating all six semicircular canals. So I mentioned that VHIT is really our only method, um, the only method that allows us to measure the vertical canals or measure VOR function there. So huge advantage for that. Um, it is very compact as far as the equipment that's required. So you can, um, you know, travel, travel with it with ease. Um, it's, it's mainly just software and goggles that are, you know, USB plug and play. Um, it typically does not induce any vestibular symptoms, um, during the test. Um, it aligns with these high frequency movements. So aligns with these uh, natural everyday uh, movements. So that's a huge advantage as opposed to some of the other tests that we uh, perform, which is going to be below where um, the uh, vestibular system is, is most sensitive. And lastly, um, it doesn't necessarily require a vision denied condition. Um, you know, most of us doing vestibular function testing out there, anytime we're doing vision denied, we're having to go 
and 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 do t- some tasking. We have to keep the the patients alert. Um, VHIT does not require that, and so that's these. You know, as you can see, these uh, VHIT has a lot of advantages for the clinician. Disadvantages at this time, or I'll call them challenges, areas for improvement with the test is that it is very technically complicated. So you do need to have some good experience uh, in this type of test to get good data. Um, what can contribute to poor data collection is inaccurate or in inadequate speed of the head movement. So I think that's one of the first things, especially as you get started with performing VHA as a clinician, is getting those quick but short head movements. Um, goggle slippage, the goggles have to be tight so that they don't slip off. Otherwise, it will create a little artifact in the cameras. Um, poor image of the pupil slash blinking, which we know is kind of an issue with a lot of our tests that are based on eye movement. Um, touching the goggles or the goggles or glasses strap can lead to poor data as well. And then overshooting or rebounding. So I know we especially talked about that rebound head movement or rebound hand movement, and it's actually a pretty natural thing. You have to think pretty hard to have a hard stop and not naturally bring, um, your wrist back. So that I think is one of the most challenging things to get used to. It does require a certain amount of neck mobility. So again, these do not have to be big head movements. And I've had a number of patients who don't have, you know, great neck mobility. Um, and maybe it's an issue on CVIMP testing They're, They can't turn their neck in the adequate way, but V-HIT is still a possibility. But again, you are jerking the head around a little bit. So you have to be aware of that. And a um, couple other things, of course, the patient does have to have a certain amount of compliance or participation. Uh, they have to have their eye open and they have to try not to blink while you're moving their head, which some people do have a natural tendency to close their eyes or blink uh, while their head's in motion. And then uh, I guess lastly, right now, something I just thought of was we do not currently have a code for billing V-HIT uh, in particular. Yeah, All right. So... Now we're going to dive into some of the research uh, associated with VHIT. There's been a lot of research over the last decade, um, maybe even slightly more with, with regard to VHIT. Um, it seems like everyone is trying to sort of establish what this test means um, in relation to not only vestibular function, impairment, but also as it relates to our other vestibular tests that have been around for a long time. And so one of the, of course, just like with any vestibular function test, we always want to know what are the effects of age. And so with regard to VHIT, there's been some work that has, has looked at that. Um, for example, just to sort of give a broad overview, uh, we know that basically uh, the VOR gain as it relates to VHIT remains relatively stable throughout the lifespan. Um, we once, we hit about 70 years old, uh, VOR gain begins to decrease nonlinearly. Um, and it isn't until about 90 years of age that significant differences of VOR gain are observed when comparing VOR gain in young and old individuals. Um, on the flip side, we know that VOR development, um, you know, is around that two years of age. And so but after, after that period of time, um, VOR gain as it relates to VHIT is pretty stable, which is really impressive. Do you know, I actually don't know the answer to this, the, um, 
like current technology, V-hit technology, does it take into account age-based norms? I don't believe so. I didn't think I so either. So. Nope. That's kind of interesting because, of course, um, you know, that can kind of change, for example, some of our right. ocular motor norms. You know, and that may be that may be the reason why they've sort of recommended a blanket um, mm -hmm. gain value, uh, you know, above 0.8 for laterals yeah. and above 0.7 for verticals. Um, yeah. So that could be the reason for that is because the, the gain actually does remain relatively stable. But right. at, just like with anything, you know, collecting clinical lab norms are always important. And, you know, your your the gain values that you may um, obtain or collect may, you know, slightly vary to some degree. For sure. Well, let's talk a little bit. Um, I know everyone always is curious about what you would find in te certain tests with some uh, vestibular disorders. So there's been, a f of course, a lot of different disorders that have been studied in the literature. Uh, we'll talk in general terms instead of based on the actual disorder, uh, more based on function, because that's ultimately what we're trying to obtain with this test. The first is an uncompensated unilateral vestibular loss. What you would expect is uh, reduced gain and corrective saccades, usually overt saccades in one head direction. With a bilateral loss, you actually would probably expect VOR gain to be small in both directions and overt saccades on both head directions as well. And then if the vestibular loss is compensated, so let's say they had a neuritis and then they've compensated from that, um, you, may, you may still see some covert saccades in present but it should be appropriate gain and those saccades should be pretty organized so not separated not in the overt stage in vestibular toxic cases i thought this was kind of interesting um, i don't know how many people are doing ototoxicity evaluations with vestibular testing but vhit um, has shown to be really great about quantifying very subtle changes that are due to uh, progressive or continued medications such as gentamicin so um, you may be able to see those uh, reductions in gain based on that. Very good. Um, so one, I, one hot topic, I think. <laughs> I already know where this is going. <laughs> um, and it, it was a pretty hot topic once, you know, once V hit was, you know, first hit the field, um, was can V hit replace calorics? Um, you know, calorics is a test that's been used for a very long time mm -hmm. and it's been used basically, the test really hasn't changed, um, since, you know, it's been developed. Um, it's a very old, but, um, good test that we still use. And, you know, when, when V hit first came out, there was like, oh, you know, can V hit, replace calorics and at the end of the day calorics are still considered the gold standard test for a vestibular function even though you know it really hasn't changed um, if you think about it calorics is you know a test where we're it's really the only test that allows us to individually assess a, the lateral semicircular canals using a physiologic stimulus and so um you know it, it it it's going and i think the just the other thing that you really have to consider is that you know i mentioned these 
these range of motions that um, that um, you know we, we do you know during vestibular function testing um, you know V hit is covering these high natural everyday head movements from one to six hertz rotary chair is going to measure um, you know VOR function as well as central compensatory processes um, in the mid in the mid frequencies and calorics are going to measure VOR function at 0. 0.0003 hertz and so um, so one thing that we have to keep in mind is that these frequency differences between the tests automatically should um, tip our hat off to tip us off to, you know, these tests have to be used together um, and not necessarily one isn't overlapping the other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I think just the argument of the differences in the frequency ranges that these, these tests are evaluating, I think is enough of an argument for me yeah. to keep a, both of them around. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of, let's talk about caloric and V-hit in a particular disorder, Meniere's disease. There's been a good amount of research um, published about why you may see absent calorics and a normal V-hit in definite Meniere's disease. So there's actually two running theories, and uh, Danny, you're welcome to interrupt me if I portray any of this information incorrectly, but there were a couple different studies in 2015 um, indicating why you may see an absent caloric in Meniere's case, but a normal V hit. Um, one theory is that there's uh, type two hair cells along the periphery um, of the cristae are more susceptible than type one to changes in that endolymphatic fluid buildup. So that may be why uh, you have that normal V hit and absent caloric or really low caloric. The other is that um, the larger labyrinth due to the actual buildup of the fluid or the high drops can reduce the heat convection and essentially reduces the efficacy of that caloric test. So we know we depend completely on the transfer of different temperatures uh, in order to create that caloric eye response. And so that may be the other reason why we why we don't see that. Yeah, you know, those these are definitely the two leading theories um, you know, we know regardless of what the theory is, we know that, you know, this has been observed with, you know, absent calorics and a normal V hit. Um, you know, both are are great theories. I'm, I'm probably in the camp of McGarvey in 2015 about, you know, just reducing that heat convection. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are um, regardless of what it is, this is definitely something that's that's observed. Yeah, absolutely. And then talk to us a little bit about even a newer aspect, uh, another way to use V-HIT testing, and it's called SHIMP testing, which first of all, what does that stand for? <laughs> Let's so, see if you can get it right. <laughs> um, SHIMP stands for Suppressive Head Impulse Test. Okay, uh, nice. Good. So um, basically, uh, you know, it was a test that was introduced – um, much, you know, a little later after V hit, um, they did not want to call it, um, if you can get what, so they called, yeah. they landed at shimp, but, um, you know, if you sort of combine shimp and V hit, 
than you know they didn't yeah, want to call it probably it, more <laughs> patient appropriate yeah huh? definitely more patient appropriate but um <laughs> so yeah it was introduced in 2016 very similar setup really the only difference is that instead of having a, a fixed target on the wall the visual target moves with the head movement and you yeah. simply just ask the patient to continue to stare at that target um, and you're actually looking for corrective saccades. Corrective saccades is an indication that a vestibular function is present. And so um, it, it does tap into VOR suppression at these higher frequencies. And what's also very interesting about SHIMP is that when it's used with VHIT, it is a functional measure of whether or not any residual VOR function is left. And it could be um, a good counseling tool for um, the clinician to sort of lay down, you know, do they expect, um, is there is there anything to work with, um, you know, when the patient goes through vestibular rehab? So, right. um, you know, mainly, you know, if you have somebody with a bilateral weakness and, you know, you're seeing a bunch of, um, you know, low gain over at saccades on V-HIT, it it's a very nice idea to do, um, good idea to do SHIMP because it could, it could, you know, help you tap into some of this residual VOR function. And that brings us to our Instagram questions. That yeah. went by pretty quick. Yes, but I did. feel like we covered a lot of information. Yeah, I learned a lot, actually. Yes. <laughs> that was very helpful for me, <laughs> which is half the reason I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> um, so we had a few different questions. So again, thank you, everyone, for continuing to send us uh, your questions. We We'll cover them um, during our episodes. Um, so, yeah, continue for everything. Continue to, we really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But uh, the first question that we had was basically the interpretation of saccades in regard to compensation. Liz? Yes. So, uh, Daniel touched on this in more detail, but as a review, if you need it right before you head into work, if, if you're listening on your way, um, Usually compensation status can be looked at in the saccade, the corrective saccade. It usually starts overt, and as a reminder, overt is when the head movement is over. Um, and they can start very disorganized. And as the patient compensates, those overt saccades may become more time-locked, and then eventually they turn to covert saccades, which I always remember the head movement covers the eye movement because it occurs during the head movement. So they start as overt, after the head movement's completed, and then transition to covert, which is during the head movement. Great. So our second question You can is... ask it and answer it. <laughs> okay. It's all you. Um, so it is basically the situation where you have low gain um, in either uh, RALP or LARP, and just to little review ralp is our right anterior left posterior that's our vertical canals and then uh, larp left anterior right posterior i can't um, believe we haven't even mentioned that this whole yes, episode that seems that like a true. fail but everyone should know those right <laughs> yes <laughs> but yes anyway continue how do you I, interpret I the same thing as i was I saying that <laughs> whoops um, fail but um so in the situation where you have low gain in these um, Rauper LARP conditions, but no present corrective saccades or other any other mm -hmm. findings, um, this is a good question. And it, you know, we we sort of Liz and I, you know, touched back and forth, and we thought about you know how to how to go about this. And um, you know, at the end of the day, I think gain is going to be the main measurement parameter. Um, mm -hmm. If you're you know if you've accounted for all of your technical errors. Um, 
you know, and you're still getting low gain from, you know, one of the canals or two of the canals. And, you know, you may not see, maybe you may, may see some eye blinks, but you're, maybe, maybe you're not seeing, you know, 80% of your impulses with corrective saccades. Maybe it's, you know, a couple here, but it's not anything that's very reliable. You know, I would still probably classify that as abnormal. Um, you know, even if you're not hitting the, you know, appropriate head velocity, eye velocity should still calculate um, or should still be in equal and opposite direction. So that really won't interfere with the gain calculation as long as there's something there. Um, but, you know, if gain is abnormally low for, you know, all of your impulses, um, you know, if you count, you've accounted for everything else, you know, and not, you're not really seeing any consistent corrective saccades, you know, I probably would still classify that as abnormal. Yeah. I like how you mentioned that we usually talk about the questions beforehand so that we can argue like offline and then yes. we'll try to come to <laughs> some sort of consen consensus here. But all right. Last question. What do you do about patients that have a significant guarding of their head or neck due to concerns, but you need that high frequency information due to lack of rotary chair. So as we've talked about, um, and Dan, you touched on this really well, They all these tests show different aspects. Although it's showing the function of the same um, anatomy, it's really still giving you different information. So just because you have calorics doesn't mean that can replace V-hit information. If you've got rotary chair, that doesn't mean that it replaces V-hit information. Yes, they can correspond in certain disorders, uh, but I think, you know, the main question is, number one, um, like how significant are their head concerns? I All the patients are a little bit guarded with neck movement. It's weird to have somebody else move your head. Like bottom line, that's super weird. So you don't need a lot of head movement to get a V-hit response. So I think you may be able to get laterals, maybe not ralp larp because that is an even more awkward head movement. And if these people are already, you know, being really guarded there, um, but yeah, I think lateral is something that's really, you know, quite reasonable to get on most people. Um, if you can't get it, look at your other test findings and think about what what's most important for the patient's treatment plan because it is so nice that we have a test that can give us high frequency information of all six semicircular canals. But at this point in time, that may, may or may not change the patient's treatment plan. So you know, if you've got calorics and VEMPs and V and G and you're showing a right vestibulopathy, V-HIT can help you confirm the extent of that, but would that change their treatment plan that you make for them? For me, maybe not. Uh, it's nice to know just because I like knowing the extent of damage or function, but um, again, I, I would just rely on what tests you can get. Vestibular testing is always a puzzle. So you get as many pieces you can and you get as many pieces that are good data uh, and then you you put it together for that patient. And sometimes you don't get good data or you don't have the tests to do them all. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, that was great. So thank you again for those, yeah. uh, those questions. Um, you know, and we'll continue to um, communicate via our Instagram. Um, yeah. I think we'll try to put some V-hit cases up. <laughs> yes. We say that and it's like <laughs> September 15th and we're finally getting our episode out. So, you know. Hey, but you know what? We're doing it. The episode's out there. I am it. proud of us. But, but uh, yes. no, yeah, no. Thank you so much, everyone, for continuing to stick around. Episode 11. Can yep. you all believe it? Next month is going to be our 12th episode and we'll be doing yes. this for a year. So yep. um, thank you for all the support. Yeah. And have a great month. We'll see you soon.
All right. Take care.